0: Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Bridgetown Podcast. John Mark Comer here. I am sitting in the basement of First Baptist Church. I'm here with the lovely Bethany Allen, who's one of our pastors. Hello, Bethy. Hi. And we are here with the legendary Dr. <laughs> Gary Bashirs. No, none no, of this is Gary nonsense. Dr. Bashirs. For yeah, right. for this morning, if you're tracking with our podcast, uh, you're not hearing a Sunday sermon. You know the last few weeks we did in-depth teaching from Matthew chapter 5 as we're working through the Sermon on the Mount in all that Jesus has to say to, well, not all he has to say, but what he has to say in Matthew 5 to nonviolence and enemy love. And it just raises all sorts of questions. So rather than do two months of Sunday teachings on the subject, we thought it'd be fitting to sit down with a number of leading excerpts on the subject who have spent a great deal of time working through the implications, not only of Matthew 5, but of the writings of the New Testament as whole, and then, of course, the narrative arc of Jesus of Nazareth's life, death, and resurrection, and all that it has to say for us as followers of Jesus, and a little bit that it has to say to our world, but for the most part, we're interested in our own life as we follow Jesus. So um, we're here with Dr. Bashir. We're really happy you're here. Thank you.
1: I'm glad I'm here, too.
0: If you don't know Gary, he's the head of the theology department at Western Seminary, across the river, a pastor to many, including myself, mentor to many, including myself, and, and Bethany.
2: I was going to say, I'll put my hand right yeah, up. Right. I need help. Absolutely. All the
0: way. <laughs> And Gary, you I, like, I don't know how to intro, intro you. I like to think of you as like the most non-pacifist pacifist I know. <laughs> so it's like you read Jesus' teachings to mean, you know, nonviolence and enemy love, but yet you're so like balanced and you always have that, like you're so aware of the other side of the conversation. And often it becomes this abstract theory that quickly runs off into la-la land and you're just really grounded. So we thought it would be fitting... To have you on, so maybe just a little bit of backstory um, about how you got to this reading. Most people that we have on, myself included, did not grow up hearing this interpretation of Matthew 5 and the New Testament around nonviolence and enemy love. And so we got to it later on through the Bible. But you actually did grow up with it. Am I right?
1: Yeah. I grew up in a brethren context uh, in the Ozarks of Missouri.
0: and o- Also known as Missouri. <laughs> no. For those of us no, that no, that's did not grow state. up there.
1: St. Louis <laughs> – North and East is Missouri. I'm from Missouri, A. Uh, south and West. Ah, so yeah. just, we, 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 just like learns, Oregon, we just have just two learned states. Something new. They just have different knew? names for them. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm from Missouri, uh, uh Missouri, E. are all, you know, they're called killing people. But in Missouri, A. Uh, we're pacifist. <laughs> no, that's not true. <laughs> I, I did grow up in a Brethren context. Plain and pacifist is literally in my genes.
0: And Brethren, for those that don't know, is an Anabaptist tradition. It, it's one of the Anabaptist groups goes back to Plymouth Brethren?
1: Uh, well, mine is not Plymouth Brethren. That's right. A, that, that's a more conservative group. I'm kind of United offshoot Church of that, Brethren. right? But it's the same crowd. Yeah. Yeah. They all come out of Menel Simons and different groups came out of that because everybody splits. Uh, and so I grew up with the idea that everything is plain. You don't put on airs and pacifist. You don't hit back. And that just where it was. And it wasn't even a question for me. It would just, that was just there. And then, when I, uh, I got into teenage years and, and rejected Christianity, uh, I thought I was. It turned out I was rejecting fundamentalism and when I was in the church in Albuquerque. When I came back to Christ and made this deep commitment, because I read Jesus, and I was thinking, why didn't somebody introduce me to this guy? I mean, he is amazing. And I was 18. You know what happens to 18 year olds in like 1964? 65? Any of you know? You like get drafted. I I, I wasn't around at the time. You get drafted. Yeah, you're too young to know what that means. Vietnam War was cranking up. The draft was hot. And suddenly it went from being something abstract to something very real because I didn't have a choice. If I got drafted, I would go in. And I had to stop and think, you know, will I do this? And I came to the conclusion that I could not be involved in killing in the war. And uh, then, I, you know, what am I going to do if I get drafted? Well, I ended up getting three induction orders, but through school and then through my time at uh, teaching, I was exempt from the draft. But then God called me to the Philippines in 1969, height of the Vietnam War, and opened myself up, up to the draft again. And I had to trust God what would happen with a wife and a little baby. I mean, huge question. And that's been all the way through. So to me, this has never been an abstract discussion since, well, really since I was 18 years old, and that was a long time ago, uh, is what would I do? Because I was under the threat of being drafted, and, you know, what would I do? And I wasn't, so I didn't have to ask that question. So it's a very old question for me, and I stand with the idea that killing is just not the way of Jesus. Uh, And... We're to love our enemies,
0: do good to them, be peacemakers. I mean, you've talked about it in your podcast. So Yeah. Fantastic. Thanks for the backstory. So, the, man, so many questions I would love to ask you with each person that we're sitting down with, rather than have a monster conversation on every single aspect of nonviolence and all of its implications. We just want to zero in on one area. So, With you, we thought we'd just give you the hardest of all of them. Well, of course. (laughs) So, um, and so, (laughs) that's a a compliment. A softball, yeah. yeah. (laughs) So it's one of the interesting things, and I'd love to even have you speak to this. Is often when I teach on or talk about nonviolence and enemy love, there's like a it's emotionally loaded for a lot of people. I think it does touch a deep place, and so often you get this like knee jerk reaction, and it's interesting. Usually, people have this kind of comeback. And usually you hear one or two of the same things every single time, and usually the first thing you hear is this, like, hardcore, well, that means somebody breaks into your house in the middle of the night, and you have a wife and children there, and they're going to, you know, not just, like, steal your TV, they're going to somehow, you know, murder and rape and... Like all this quite violent things, and you're just gonna sit there and pray for them and watch it happen. And I've literally had people say, I'm just so glad I'm not in your family, and stuff like that. So, and I think it is interesting that people go to that yep. gnarly extreme, not because that's an impossibility, but uh, because it is an interesting, I'm, I'm just interested. That's the first place that people go. But I would love to have you actually speak to that. So, and even I've been thinking about it, there was. On my block, so a few houses down, I live in a nice, safe neighborhood, so it's kind of easy for me. It is more abstract concept for me. But just last year, one of my neighbors woke up in the middle of the night and there was somebody you know, butt naked with a giant knife on top of his bed, with him and his wife in bed, that had the knife over. And this person was high in drugs. And this person actually had a gun pulled out. I don't know, I'm not, I'm not sure exactly how it went down, but it was in the paper and all that pulled out a gun and missed, but chased the gentleman out of the house and he's later caught. So even in my safe neighborhood, it is a hypothetical scenario, but it's not like out of the range of possibility, even if it's a very small possibility. So I just, we'd love to chat through just that idea. What do the teachings of Jesus about turn the other cheek and love your enemy have to say to home invasion? And really what you're asking there, you're asking questions about self-defense And you're asking questions about violence in defense of the innocent because, you know, would you just sit by there and stand or whatever? So here's a question from one of our listeners. If an intruder broke into your house in the middle of the night, threatened your wife and children with a gun, would you use force of some type, including a gun, to resist him? Or here's another one. Um, If there's a madman in a mall with a gun, should he be shot by a police officer or should everyone try to win him over by dying if necessary? Or um, here's another one. I dislike violence, but wonder about the classic home intrusion self-defense dilemma. I'm getting married in a few weeks and I can't imagine not using violence to defend my wife if necessary. What is my role as a protector?
1: Well, part of what, I mean, this is not an easy question, obviously, but it, Part of it is we immediately go to the extreme. You know, I'm, I'm an old man. I've got a lot of old friends. I've never had that happen. I lived on North 4th Street in Albuquerque as a kid which was not a safe neighborhood and I am very much in the habit of looking around to see what's going on and I've avoided a lot of difficulties simply by looking around. Uh, I lock my doors at night. I do those kinds of things. There's a lot of things you can do to prepare so that you don't have to face that. But there is the possibility of that happening, like you said, in your neighborhood. And to me, loving an enemy means stopping him from totally ruining his life. But I'm not going to shoot him. Uh, I don't have a gun in my house. I'm not going to have a gun in my house. But what I am going to do is be prepared at a certain level to stop somebody from doing something like that. Because if they go through and kill or rape, I mean, oh, my gosh, that's a horrible consequence for them. So I'm going to stop them. Maybe a good thing to do would be like my two granddaughters they're both black belts in karate. You know, I pity the guy that tries to take them on. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and and it,
0: they're not killing anybody with that, yeah. but they're
1: stopping them from so, doing something. So
0: are you distinguishing between violence and force? Absolutely. Yeah, violence Arse or vengeance.
1: I uh, I think Romans 12 that you'll talk about another thing where it says leave vengeance to God. Right. Vengeance, you hurt me, I'm going to get you back. That's the lamic cycle that you've talked about in your sermons. And violence or um, vengeance is what Jesus says, stop it. And that's the big problem he's talking about, which is the hate your enemy thing there in Matthew 5. Force, in my judgment, is a different thing. It's using strength to stop somebody from doing something evil. Hmm. The intent of vengeance is to hurt somebody for hurting me. The intent of force is to stop somebody from doing something that's actually going to cause hurt for themselves and others. So in a in a home invasion type thing, yes, I would stop somebody from doing something that's actually going to ruin their life. Yeah. So in the scenario you're talking about, I mean, I don't know what I would do because of a situation like that. But, you know, to kick him off the bed or shout and scream or, you know, do things like that, they're going to try to pray, stop. Well, pray for sure. I read a story yeah.
0: a few weeks ago about a gal who had that situation and said, before you rob me, can I make you a cup of coffee? Actually, yeah. it wasn't Rob. Before he did something else, let me make you a cup of coffee. Yeah. And they literally went downstairs, had coffee, and then the guy left.
1: One of my favorite stories was a story in, the, in Indonesia when the was a group of bad people, came to a pastor's house and said, we're going to kill you. He called his family out and said, rejoice, we're going to see Jesus tonight, but we'll treat our guests well first. Would you make some tea and bring some bread, and we'll feed our our friends, our new friends, before they send us to see Jesus. That's a great way to go. Yeah. Unfortunately, he survived and didn't go, didn't go see Jesus. The people were so befuddled. Yeah. But see, that kind of a thing, you're establishing a good relationship where you can. Now, somebody on your bed and raising a knife to kill you. Right, and you don't have
0: time to, yeah. But the or the are high on is, drugs yeah. or not in And it, right those kinds
1: of things, I think, useful. Force.
0: force. It's really helpful to distinguishing because one of the things that I hear a lot in this conversation is people just lump everything into the category right. of violence. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, therefore spanking their children as an act of love is violence. And that's a separate conversation or, you know, using pepper spray, or just holding somebody right. back who's high on meth and broke into your house and is wreaking havoc, like holding them with two arms is therefore violence. And it just doesn't no. make sense to me. The,
1: for Jesus, motivation is critical, of course. And the
0: vengeance the, thing the that vengeance you're speaking to. The vengeance is
1: hurting somebody to inflict pain on them, uh, where force is using strength to stop them from doing something that's actually going to ruin that their will hurt lives. hurt them
0: as well as you well,
1: or others. It, it, the goal is, do, is not to hurt at all. Yeah. And it's amazing with a little bit of self-defense preparation, you can stop a whole lot of things without actually hurting
0: the person at all. Yeah, I'm saying there. yes, to stop them from hurting themselves themselves as well as you and others. I love that Dr. King line about how the people most to be pitied are the perpetrators of violence even more than the victims because they're ruining their own life, not just yourself and others in the house in the scenario. And of course the goal there
1: is to get to them before – and that's where our society fails so badly, right. is we don't go to these troubled people and help them deal with their stuff. We tend to exclude them and insult them and disrespect them, which right. only feeds their violence.
0: So you're saying somebody comes in, you don't have a gun, so that's not an option right off the bat. So first, you know, you you're looking for some kind of a creative way. Can I make you coffee? Can you become my friend before you kill me or something? Then you know if all if that fails, you look to some kind of force, whether that be you tackle them or restrain them, or yep. you know dial nine one one, or you know well definitely dial nine one one. Yeah, or just run out of the house, yeah. or but some kind of force. What what happens if? I mean, it's all just happening too fast, and you literally wake up and there's somebody standing over you, as was the case in my on my street, knife over your head, and just you've tried to find a creative way, you've prayed, nothing's happening, like. And, and the only option that you see before you, right or wrong, is some kind of violence, whether that be grabbing a knife out of the kitchen or a baseball bat from the wall or something like that. What do you do in that moment? I, having never faced that, I, I can only speak
1: hypothetically. I don't think I'd do either one of those. Uh, I, I think what I would do, I mean, I've thought, tried to think through it because I want to be prepared for these kinds of things, I think what I'm going to do is actually do something like tackle the person and put my life on the line potentially yeah. to protect Sherry or somebody else who might be a guest in my house.
0: Yeah. And then, of course, you know, you have that. I remember this from seminary when I was with you and with uh, Todd Miles in our ethics class, talking about are there contradictory commands? And that's one of the big yeah. questions here. And you know, because it seems like there's one impulse to. Turn the other cheek, love your enemy, not fight evil with violence, Matthew 5. But then there's this other impulse to stand up for the innocent, yes. which in my case would be my two 8-year-old children yeah. and 11-year-old, yeah. you know. Now, then, I don't think there are any commands, and I'd love to have you speak to this, to use violence to defend the innocent. I'm not aware of Jesus ever saying that, or any of the, even the writers of the Old Testament saying that, but maybe I'm missing something. Well, but there's definitely a call to stand up for the innocent. Yeah.
1: To protect the innocent, and it doesn't go into details. You do have things in the Old Testament, of course, with various kinds of punishments, capital punishment. That's not done by the individual; it's done by yeah, the, that's done by the court system. By the court system. And the uh, as I look at it, uh, when I'm thinking about somebody, well, let me come back to your thing. I am an I am a belief that once we're into sinful situations, there is no sinless way out. In right. many cases, I disagree with most of the Christian ethicists who has some sort of graduated hierarchicalism or something. Yeah, the lesser of evils yeah. things. And, well, I think what happens is there are times when I'm going to the, do the least sinful thing to do and then confess my sin before God.
0: Yeah. And for those of you new to that conversation, you know, the question is, are there contradictory commands? So in this case, it would be love your neighbor or love your enemy and, you know, protect the innocent.
1: Yeah. And, and once you're into a sinful situation— I think there's not a sinless way out sometimes.
0: Right. So you kind of have three options. One option is there are never contradictory commands. There's always a third option out. That's one, one interpretation. Another is, no, sometimes there are contradictory commands. There's no way out. So you pick the lesser of evils, and you're good. Right. And then the third option that you're saying, and I agree. I remember when I was sitting through my ethics class, this was the position I ended up coming to. There are contradictory commands. There are times when there's no way out, at least that you're aware of. So you pick the lesser of evils, and then you fall on the mercy of God. Absolutely. And so this almost seems yep. like you know the classic example of Bonhoeffer, who, of course, now recent evidence, we're not even sure if he was involved in that plot. But what, if he was involved in the plot to assassinate Hitler, it seemed like he did so, a great torment to his own soul. Yes. And he was he was a pacifist who yes. thought Jesus taught nonviolence, but he did this because it just felt like an impossible situation, could not get out of the scenario, and, of course, whether we don't know what his end, kind of emotional or mental state was, mm-hmm. but it seems like if he did it on purpose, he did it like begging for the mercy of God. Absolutely, and that seems like kind of the right yeah. heart posture.
1: Yeah, Joel Burnell, who's a very good friend of mine and an bon- international Bonhoeffer ex- expert, is teaching a class on Bonhoeffer at the seminary. You guys could come in and audit it. Oh, that sounds amazing. Nights. Yeah, it is. Joel is uh, absolute; he's a top-level expert. Lives in Wrocław, Poland, which is Bonhoeffer's birthplace. Wow. And he's gone through that at great length. And he says, yes, that's exactly what it was. Bonhoeffer decided at a spot where he had to be involved to stop Hitler, if necessary, by murderous force. But did it always
0: as this is an evil thing and I have to repent before God. Wow. And, fallen and the interesting thing about that is the whole thing backfired and ended up making a bad problem worse. Yeah. Which is a separate conversation we don't have time for. So, OK, so here's – I mean let me run this by you because I've thought this through – Again, hypothetical scenario f- more for you, but I have a family. So if somebody comes into my home in the middle of the night, there's a repeat of what happened three houses down last year. One, I don't have a gun in the house cause that, for all sorts of reasons. One is just statistically I'm more likely to harm my family than I am that person. Two is I don't want to – he might just be there to like steal my t- – I don't have a TV. Steal my – iphone or my laptop or a chair or something like that but then i pull out a gun you know and then it all of a sudden it goes up to this whole other level and now it becomes this violent thing or his gun wasn't even loaded or it was a squirt gun you hear those crazy stories and it was just there to intimidate me so i don't have a gun in the house so that's not an option but um first i pray and i like actually believe that jesus could intervene in the situation and i'd pray alone yeah Secondly, I talk to him, look mm-hmm. for some kind of a creative. Hey, what do you need? I mean, of course we love the lay Mis analogy of the robber in the house and here, take the candle holders too, you know what I mean? And sending the man off with, with more. Do you need food? Do you need money? Do you need help with rent? Or whatever. So you look for a creative way to love Absolutely. your enemy. Um, third, if, if there was failure, like God's not answering my prayer, at least as I can see it, he's not hearing me or he's out of his mind or her mind or whatever. Third is force, nonviolent force. Whether I tackle the person, even if it's at my own, risking my own neck, to restrain them while my family runs out of the house and calls 911 or whatever. And then last, last option. If, like like, they're literally there with a gun to my child's head or whatever, and the only thing I can possibly think of is go get the, like, vegetable knife from the kitchen and take a run, you do it and fall on the mercy of God. But you're saying you wouldn't even do that in the first place. I don't, but I, if, if I'm, just, yeah. I'm just trying to think through the hypothetical yeah. scenario. Yeah. Well, that level, Either way, you yeah. do it and then repent of it as sin, fall on the mercy of God. Yep. That was wrong. That was yep. my lack of faith. That was whatever. But in an impossible situation, it was my—that's kind of like where I've worked through it.
1: And there's a pattern I see in Scripture where God uses sin to judge sin. So when he sends the Babylonians to judge the sin of Jerusalem— What the Babylonians do is absolute sin, and God uses sin to judge sin sometimes. So I actually see a pattern there that would kind of be like what we're talking about here. Of course, I'm not God. (laughs) That's a whole different thing. Right.
2: Yeah. Well, what I'm hearing too, I just, what I'm hearing you guys say, especially, and I'm thinking my mind is kind of going a million miles a minute, but as we're thinking about these scenarios, I think about all these people I knew growing up in the South who, you know, get your guns and protect yourself. And it's like hyper noble to do that. And since coming to the Northwest, I have a different way of thinking and engaging this topic. But I think the, the biggest thing that stands out for me, at least in this conversation that I hear you saying, Gary, is be prepared, like think through these yes. things well. And I know you said it and it could just seem like something that we just go with. But for me, I'm thinking, how often are we thinking through scenarios where we're trying to connect relationally or, with Jesus in those scenarios or whatever that are going to help us be alert to the moment and the things that we need to be alert to, if something like that took place. So anyway, yeah. I'm thankful for that because that's actually helpful for me right now. Yeah.
1: I actually have scripts in my mind if because I actually near at one time when I was in Instagram one time I saw a man beating a woman and I assume it was a um, a pimp beating his yeah. his prostitute. And I I have scripts in my head to handle that sort of thing. Now, in that particular situation, I, w- I wasn't the first guy there. Somebody else beat it. Uh, but I have scripts in my head to do that kind of thing. And I, I do think and I think being prepared is exactly the right way to go.
2: Especially as a Jesus follower, I think I have a few scripts for if somebody came into the gathering. I have like things I run in my head every single week, which is like bananas. But I do think especially being a woman, and this kind of maybe will help us transition to the next question, but being a woman who lives alone, who, you know, Whatever. I'm out. I can be in different places. I feel vulnerable. There's a vulnerability. We are vulnerable. Right. To my situation. And even if I'm a strong woman or a confident woman or whatever it may be, there's still a certain vulnerability that I'm living with day in and day out. And I have to think through even walking to my car on Sunday nights am I safe? Or what would happen if these certain things took place? So that kind of leads us to the next question um, uh, that we got asked. Uh, Someone asked, what about self-defense? Like if you're in a dark alley or a guy tries to mug you or rape you or worse, uh, and if violence for self-defense isn't okay, what about using a weapon that's not going to hurt someone like pepper spray or I think of all these new contraptions they come out with for (laughs) women uh, to protect us. But what do we do you know, in situations like that. Do we use pepper spray? Do we have, you know, I usually put, at least I was trained since I was a little girl to put all my keys like Wolverine in my fingers in case. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so yeah. if you see me walk in the streets with keys. in uh, my,
0: <laughs> I'm never going to sneak up on you <laughs> <laughs> on your way to your but car like every, after church, Bethany. <laughs> I know, I'm
2: prepared. But but you think through those scenarios. And honestly, it's something I think about. Even home invasion yeah. is different because no one lives with me. Yeah, right. So who can hear me? What What's my... Um, What's my go-to plan? And I think in all of us as Jesus followers, there's a call here beneath, beneath all that we're learning, even through the scriptures, to be mindful about these things, to be disciplined about thinking through these things, because life can happen, and this stuff does happen. So what do you think about the self-defense, dark alley, particularly vulnerable women, particularly people? This happens all the time. We live in a big city, and what do we do?
1: Yeah, being uh, the wife or being the husband of a wife, the father of a daughter and the grandfather of three granddaughters and then friend with many women, this is not a a hypothetical example. Uh, Sherry does not carry pepper spray and none of the other women in my life do. In part because just realistically by the time you got it out and got it aimed and that kind of stuff, if somebody's really going to hurt you, they've already done it. So I'm not as much unless if you're
0: Bethany, who's well, ready. You have the Wolverine in keys. one. Wolf- yeah, well, the Wolverine keys <laughs> is a little different thing. <laughs> that just you. I feel I like I, I a whole new dimension to you just open. You up. seem
1: so kind, I, and Wolverine
2: I am, keys. but also oh, I'm right, I'm prepared. She's
0: yeah. kind, but yeah. like no no sneaking up on Bethany that's right. ever.
1: And that's that's where I think being prepared, and that's where like my two granddaughters, they are black belt in karate in part just because they don't want to be in a spot where they would be hurt at least be as prepared as they can be for that. Uh, Lizzie, my nine-year-old, has taken some basic self-defense, but she's not quite old enough to do that yet. Uh, so I think being prepared for that and having some basic self-defense down and ready to go, just like first aid, you just, you're ready to go with that kind of thing. I think that's really good.
2: Does that fall under the force yeah. then, category yeah, yeah. that we you're were talking stopping about earlier?
1: If somebody were to grab you and assault you, that's a felony. They do major prison time for that. Uh, And if you can stop them from doing that, you're actually loving them
0: in a, a way you don't want to love them to be sure. But again, you're saying find a way to do that without using violence. That's
1: correct. Violence, the difference between force and violence to me is critical. Violence is I want to hurt you because you're hurting me. Force is stopping you from doing something that's going to hurt you and me and an innocent person. The difference in motivation is crucial.
2: Do you have an opinion about if I can just keep asking? Mm-hmm. What do you have an opinion about pepper spray then in that line or that Yeah, because you know? let's
0: say like maybe they don't, they don't you know, it's too late by the time they get it out, but I I'm a runner, so I run in Forest Park all the time. And if I even if I don't run early in the morning, but even as a man, but definitely as a woman, I know a lot of women. My my own wife at times who will run in the park, but you know, it's dar- it's semi-dark. It's the middle of winter. Right now it's summer and beautiful, but in winter, like, it's kind of dark <laughs> till noon. Yeah, yeah. So, and so I know a lot of women that will actually run with pepper yeah. spray in the hand, you and, know?
1: And see, I I would be perfectly supportive of using pepper spray because, again, the thing is to stop somebody. It's a force. Into, and that's what I have to think about motivation. You know, in you scared me, so I'm going to pepper spray you, that would be violence. Yeah. Uh, but seeing somebody who's coming for you and I'm going to stop you if and I can't run it's away. it's temporary
0: pain. Whereas yeah. the Wolverine keys...
1: Welt. not to beat up on that but
0: you hit me with that in yeah. the neck I'm dead Right. I just I just have like all of a sudden I have R-rated movie in my mind Bethany with like yeah. a key to my <laughs> neck <and> just, <laughs> uh.
2: I don't know that I'm that strong but I, I always the invi- the thing I envisioned was like scraping someone across the face on their eyes or something because if they're it's but I mean the, that, like, has, that has the potential it, to
0: actually it does do have, violence to them
2: absolutely yeah, I, I
0: would
1: go with pepper spray before I do the Wolverine keys or, or knife or something. I want to be clear I'm not like <laughs> but Aikido classes before all
2: Yeah, I think I the, think the thing I keep thinking about, too, is you're just—it's it, such a beautiful thing that we see in the life of Jesus, but you're talking about disarming people. Yes. And yes. that's really what you're doing, yes. and I think pepper spray can be used that way, too, just to disarm the, them, yes. to pa- to even allow them to pause for a second to go, what am, what's happening? What am I doing? And I think there's so much wisdom in that. Mm-hmm.
0: But again, same as the home invasion, first you pray, yeah. second you look for a creative alternative— And then third, you resort to force. Now, if it's in the middle of the night and you're getting attacked and you're not in your right mind, we're not going to, like, go through the checklist. But the ideal is, first, you pray. Second, Mm -hmm. you talk to the person, look for a creative, nonviolent, not even force way out. And then you resort to force, but not violence if necessary. And
1: I would absolutely, I mean, my grandgirls are there. They're doing self-defense courses, so they, they know how to take
0: somebody down if they're attacked.
2: Yeah, yeah.
0: Okay, so let me transition to this, to, like... The really hard question, and some people will think it's offensive that I even ask this question, um, and so please just go easy on me on that. Be offensive, that. John Mark. But be offensive. no, that's not my heart posture here at all. I just I want to think well, and I want to honor the teachings of Jesus. So it feels like there there's some clarity that comes from Matthew five and the New Testament writings around nonviolence. But one of the biggest questions that Nonviolent theologians don't agree on and uh, is specifically the issue of being a police officer and a follower of Jesus. And how do you square those two? Because then it's different than the military, where if you are special forces or something like that, your job is literally to kill people. Whereas as a police officer, your job is to protect and serve. But you are in a job and a vocation that will potentially put you in a scenario where you have to use violence. So I'd just love to have you, there's no chapter and verse answer to this question. There is no, even in nonviolent theologians and nonviolent theological interpretations, there is diversity of opinion here. I'd just love to have you speak to that.
1: One of the things that I think about is in Luke chapter three, when John the Baptist is interacting with people about what does it mean to repent and do good, do justice, is soldiers ask him, what should they do? And he doesn't say, get out of the military. Now, John the Baptist is not Jesus. What he does say is, "Don't, don't be corrupt. Do your job without right. using that to, to feather your own nest, so to speak." So that seems to me as a pattern where you can do this in a just way. So I, I've got a number of friends, close friends, who are police officers. I'm thinking one in particular who's not a pastor. And he is—he's been nine years on the Portland police force. He's a pastor now, and not on the police force anymore. And he went through nine years, and he never fired his weapon ever. Uh, and his goal was always to control a situation and stop people from doing evil things. And now this particular friend, Tom Pennington, is not a—he's he, not a pacifist. But when I listen to how he does his police job, he is actually doing pacifist yeah his known. goal is to use the m- absolute minimum level of force to control a situation he, most of the police officers training is in de-escalating a situation and disarming those kind of things and actually using any kind of force a baton or a, a taser or a, a you know their glock 9mm uh, is The very last thing they want to do, I've got another friend who's a Portland police sergeant. He's been on the force 20 years. He's never fired his weapon. Uh, He's had it out and used to control situations. Uh, But he has been in situations where he now carries a whole lot of PTSD simply because he's been in horrific situations to bring calm and peace into that situation. I actually think a pacifist could be a police officer, but you'd also have to be at that spot where you're prepared to... Then there could be a situation where you would be required by your job to kill somebody to stop in, in a deadly force situation where you're actually stopping somebody from killing somebody else, and the very last situation would be to kill somebody.
0: Right, and, and that's, I think that's a, the rub. I think
1: a pacifist... Could be a police officer and be a very good police officer, but they'd have to know that they're in a spot where they're in the most extreme situations where people have guns out and are blazing away with it or whatever, and you're at a spot where you have to stop it. And it could be that you'd have to be required to kill somebody. But I look at all my police officer friends. Not one of them has ever fired their weapon. Hmm. Fascinating.
2: Gary, just a few more questions that we have for you. Oh, you're going to be
1: kind to me, unlike John Mark, yeah. right?
2: <laughs> so, so kind. Remember, I'm, I was your favorite student. This oh, is, yeah, yeah. This is just all love and affection. Um, we had a question come in, um, and just they asked, if you're a victim of rape, um, which is something I know that even as a women's pastor, I'm faced with. Often. Yeah,
0: it's more common than people think. Way oh my more gosh. common. You know, I've dealt with quite a few.
2: I can't, even, I can't even express even this summer, just the level. Just, this is a huge conversation yep. we're having often, unfortunately. Um, but the question is, if you're a victim of rape, does turning the other cheek mean asking a prosecutor um, not to press charges against your rapist? Or how uh, should Christians relate to the justice system, especially in scenarios and situations like this? And then just to even add on to that question, how do you love family and relatives that continually abuse physically, emotionally, spe- sexually, spiritually, all that? Like how, when they're inflicting that kind of pain in your life, how do, you, how do you love them in line with the way and the teachings of Jesus?
1: Well, you're right. That's the hardest question I know how to deal with. I mean, that is very real. It's not hypothetical. It's not extreme like a home robbery kind of thing. Right. The actual reality of forcible rape or assault or abuse is a all too common. Domestic violence constantly happening. Uh, my fundamental thing is still come back and that is to stop the evil with the least um, forceful way to do things. Uh, in a case where we'll just let's just take a rape situation because I've got one in, I've dealt with recently, uh, I you absolutely call the police. In my judgment, and the because the state does have the requirement to enact justice and to keep order in the society. Uh, in the particular situation I'm thinking of, uh of course, the woman who had been raped had to go to court and testify, which is absolutely a horrible thing to go through. Right. Yeah. Being questioned by the police officers and in testifying in court, we gave her an enormous amount of support in that process to go through that, and she actually asked the court to be merciful to her rapist. I uh, didn't give specifics. I don't know how she did it, frankly. Uh, this is a very godly woman. And the court, uh, I mean, he still did prison time. But then what she did was she arranged for people to go visit him in prison. She didn't because you, basically you can't do that in the system. Uh, but she arranged for pastor-type people to visit this guy just to express uh, her concern for him as a human, even if he would raped her. Now, that, to me, that is that is going not only the extra mile. That's going the extra 10 miles. And to me, that's a pattern of the way to do things. Tom Cole, Judge Tom Cole. Yeah, I was just thinking about him. Uh, he was uh, in our church yeah. for years. Oh, yeah, and he's become a good friend. His daughter was murdered in a drug deal gone bad. It horrible, horrible, horrible. And he went out to Umatilla and visited Robert in prison because uh, he'd said in the courtroom, I forgive you as a Christian man, but then used his context as a judge to go out and visit Robert in the prison. And they can't talk about the crime. And after five minutes, they'd said everything there was to say. And they've got 55 minutes left in the visiting (laughs) time. And he sat there, and there was—I mean, there's literally nothing to say. And Robert looked at him across the table and said, How could you forgive me? Well, boy, you know where the rest of the rest of 55 (laughs) minutes went— and they're both wet blankets just because of the power of things. Now, who knows what happened, with Robert? But you can you can read that in Tom Cole's KOHL. Is it Losing Megan? Uh, yeah, I think so. I think it's something like that. KOHL is his last name, yeah. Tom Cole. And it's, it's a book to be read. I mean, it's amazing. And drug court and stuff that he's done to try to keep people out of the prison system and in rehabilitation type things. There's a lot of things to be done. In these most extreme kinds of situations, and I think that's a that's a model to follow of doing godly justice.
0: Of, and you, so you're saying use the justice system. Absolutely. And there is a place, if nothing else, to keep perpetrators from um, doing damage to other people, yeah. and but I don't, yet from a posture of love, forgiveness, yep. mercy.
1: And that's where the other side of my life is. We've got to get into the prisons and take. Jesus and justice into the prisons because the prison itself doesn't do anybody any good. That's overstated, uh, but there's a lot of Christian work happening in the prisons through education, through pastoral support, through all kinds of things, and there's tremendous differences being made in the in the justice system. And I think there's a lot we can do as a Christian with that.
2: Yeah. Would you put this in the same then, at some level, the same category of this is the loving thing to do? Yes. To to help this person yes. to. You know, to stop one being a perpetrator, but as well as maybe have a, have an option of rehabilitation or yes. whatever. Yeah, yep. okay. we
1: we call it rehabilitation centers, uh, but we can make it that by being involved in prison ministry.
2: Yeah. What about the family piece of people who are abusive um, relatives who are continually, you know. Perpetually abusing physically, emotionally, spiritually, yeah, when that. I did
0: the teaching a few weeks ago and turned the other cheek, I did not specifically address you know the implications of this right. for um, a wife who's being beat by her husband because again, I made the mistake of just assuming, well, of course everybody knows that's wrong, and Jesus is not saying just stand there and take it, no but yet I immediately had a number actually of children of 20-something children who grew up in a home like that where there was an abusive father in each case and the mother read Jesus Matthew 5, turn the other cheek, literally as some kind of a command to just stay with her husband and take it. And so obviously these kids who are now 20-somethings were just wrecked by that. You know. And of course I, I had no intention of saying that in the slightest, but um, it is something that comes up.
1: Well, that's where the Matthew 18 comes back. If somebody sins against you, Matthew 18, you go to them. Uh, Now, if you're a a 14-year-old girl being abused by dad, you may not go to him in quite the same way, but actually you can do a lot of that. Daddy, please stop. Uh, But then you don't stop there. You know, you get somebody to help out. Uh, And all the way up, I mean, there's a long ways you can go with that. Nobody should ever be abused in a home. And this is a place where the church, uh, as we become more aware of domestic violence and the right. kinds of things going on and better at interacting with it. So we've got a group like ARMS yeah. that are a, a good resource. Uh, it's free to the user. Stacey Womack and the crowd do a great job with that, both perpetrator and uh, a victim. And there's a lot we can do with that. But I think we should say regularly, and we should preach from our pulpits and teach from our classes, if you're being abused in your home, you should report it to uh, the police, to Child Protective Services, to your pastor, uh, because you've got to stop it. You know, it's not okay to let this go ahead. And to argue, well, just submit, it's your fault because you're being, you know, you're not being properly submissive, that, boy— Oh, I get so angry about yeah. that. Yeah, that's it's a abuse a of scripture.
0: Lie. Yeah. yeah,
2: it's a perversion of of the truth. And
0: I think it just speaks again, and we'll re- we'll end here. But just to just thinking through this through a whole fresh round of it over the last month or so, just so interesting how we immediately default to either the fight or flight options, and we think our options are either pull out a gun and shoot somebody, <laughs> or yeah. just roll over and take it, mm. and. Man, that's just—our our imaginations are so captive to violence or, for a few of us, to passivism yep. rather than, you know, to pacify, passivism, yep. that we just need to, I think, open our mind's eye and our imagination to all of the implications of Jesus' teachings around creative alternative solutions to violence done from a posture of enemy love, but with stop evil and do justice— mm-hmm kind of in mind. So, Gary, thank you so much for being with us. If you're listening, obviously not a lot of black and white answers, huh. uh, or not a lot of chapter and verse, because at this point we're dealing with implications, and we're wrestling with, right. hey, what's Gary, as a theologian, as somebody who spent time in it, as a pastor and a counselor, What, what are your, what's your take on the implications of Jesus' teaching for self-defense, home invasion, pepper spray? Obviously, there's no you know, chapter and verse in the Bible about pepper spray. So at this point, we're extrapolating out our best take at implications. And so we really respect you, Gary and your voice on this subject and many more. Really grateful for your time. For those of you listening, just keep asking great questions. Keep wrestling. Uh, Shocking to me is how few people wrestle with this. Like, wrestle with it. Think it through. As Bethany said, have a plan in your mind's eye. Pray through things. Wrestle with the text. Wrestle with the heart posture of Jesus for your situation, your neighborhood, your place, your city, all of that. So thanks for listening to the Bridgetown Podcast and the Van City Podcast. We're happy to have you along. See you next time.
2: For more content like this, visit bridgetown.church.